Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Hello, and welcome to Bible Interact Presents. I'm Christy Anderson. You can find more information about this ministry at foritiswritten.com. Again, that's foritiswritten.com. Today, we're going to be discussing a teaching entitled, Every Offering with Salt. And as we look at this teaching, it's a blend of giving you some information, but hopefully giving you some things to look at when you're interpreting the scriptures and things you need to be aware of, things you need to do to approach interpretation from both an ancient method, but also using modern tools. Sadly, because we're on radio, you're not going to be able to see the visual PowerPoints and be able to follow along in that way. So I'll try to describe these things to you as we go along as best we can. So let's dive in. Now, as I said, we're talking about this idea of every offering with salt. And I always wanted to investigate the idea of salt and, and the fact that the Lord talks about a salt covenant. And I, and we don't get a whole lot of information, but salt is mentioned at important spots all over Scripture. And so I asked the question, what is the significance of salt in Scripture? What is the lesson of salt? And so when you're going to approach something like this, the first thing you're going to do is we understand that God reveals himself first in the natural. And then by understanding the natural, then we understand the spiritual. And so I went in and and did some research on salt and found a number of interesting things about it that I didn't know. And I mean, all of us use salt every day. So this is not something we're unfamiliar with. We just don't normally investigate it to that degree that we would really understand it. And not only do we want to understand it, but we need to also investigate it in terms of the ancient Near East and how um, salt was used in that time period and how it was um, applied or used in different circumstances that might be different from our own. In modern times, salt is so common as a just a condiment, we don't really think of it in the terms that it was used in the past and the significance that it had. So we'll start our investigation with just looking at salt in the natural and discovering some of its features and characteristics. Now, there was a a slide that you're not going to see here, obviously, via radio, that shows a mine 650 feet down uh, below the Earth's surface. Um, It's in Kansas, and... It was interesting on this website, it noted, um, it quoted actually a poet who wrote an ode to salt. And what's interesting is that he says that salt sings. And that is is really significant because we know the Lord said the rocks would cry out if, if no one else did. And yet uh, salt is a, is a rock. And so... It's interesting that this poet said that salt sings, and then they continue uh, what they're writing here, and they say that the walls of this mine 
act as ancient scrolls of the earth, revealing secrets from the strata formed by the Permian Sea long ago. Now, it's interesting because we have this concept on a, on a generally a scientific, secular um, website that's talking about the idea that salt sings and it's a rock and that they're describing it as an ancient, these strata layers as an ancient scroll that is formed from the sea and so from water. And I thought, wow, what a, a powerful combination that uh, is so interesting in the way that even just the world and, and the modern times even views salt. Now, salt is a substance so valuable that it served as currency. It influenced and established um, trade routes and cities. It provoked and financed wars. It secured empires and inspired revolutions. Salt is sodium chloride, and it touches our lives in more uh, than just natural um, sense of its compounds. Uh, as, as salt or table salt, there are, there are many different types of salt and different uses. Over the course of human history, it's basically done more than just flavor our food. Its ability to preserve foods and sustain civilizations through cold winters has sent countries on desperate searches to find it, control it, tax it, and trade it. In some parts of the world, salt was minted into coins as valuable as gold and soldiers were paid in salt. So, for example, in Greece, the slave trade gave rise to the expression, not worth his salt. In the Roman times, they would pay the salary uh, or the salarium uh, to those who were worth their salt. And it was given as a ration as well to Roman soldiers. And the word salt itself comes from the Latin for salary. Now, what is salt itself? It, chemically, it's known as sodium chloride. It's the combination of one sodium ion and one chloride ion. Salt enhances and flavors our food. It preserves food. It regulates and controls normal body functions. It acts as a building block for more complex chemicals as well. Now, interestingly enough, as I mentioned before, salt is the only rock, it's a rock, that's eaten by humans. Salt is required for blood, sweat, digestive juices, and the, uh, to make the efficient nerve transmission. So what does all this mean, though? Why is this important? Well, salt is required for life. It is required for life. In a study of the Journal of the American Medical Association, they note that the lowest salt intakes in certain populations that they studied uh, exhibit the shortest lifespans. So the less salt, the less, uh, the shorter the life. Where does salt then come from, though? Well, salt occurs naturally all over the world as the mineral halite, as well as in seawater and salt lakes. It's primarily found underground in rock form, or it's dissolved in the world's oceans in some lakes, or on the surfaces of ancient evaporated seabeds. Animals naturally seek out salt, and you've probably heard of salt licks. With salt, the fishermen could preserve the fish they caught, making it possible for them to store it in ancient times as a commodity for exchange. 
So the ancient Hebrews, of course, knew well uh, this principle of salt, and they used it to preserve food. Its salts, uh, or salts use, was recommended by the rabbis for draining the blood from meat. So blood cannot be thoroughly extracted from meat unless the latter is well salted, uh, they said. Here in the Jewish Encyclopedia, they go on from here to say and explain uh, in detail how salt was used and necessary um, when they were doing the draining process um, after um, doing the sacrifices. Now, in uh, the sea, or I'm sorry, the Sea of Galilee area, um, that was a well-known area for preparing salted fish, which was a staple of commerce, of course, um, and it was extensively carried out there. Now, salt is a what you might also call a flesh preserver. Archaeologists have found salt mummified, uh, what they call salt, salt men, um, back all the way to the 7th century BC, so basically from the beginning of, of human recorded history uh, that we have anyway. Um, from the beginning of, of that time, and that was found in the area of Iran. Now, salt is considered as the most necessary condiment, and therefore the rabbis likened the Torah to it, or at least we're going to see how it combines uh, these metaphors with the Torah, um, Torah also being bread and, and so forth, and we'll see how that develops later on. For as the world could not do without salt, they say, neither could it do without the Torah. A meal without salt is considered no meal, they said. And that's, again, quoting from the Jewish, um, yeah, the Jewish encyclopedia. Now, salt is the policeman of taste. It keeps various flavors of a dish in order and restrains the stronger from tyrannizing over the weaker. But again, what does all this mean? Why is it important? Again, we're looking at it and seeing that salt is associated with the preservation also of life. Now, as we have looked here at the general idea of salt, we, we understand that it's necessary for life and for the preservation of life. We need to set some ground rules and, and foundational presuppositions about um, approaching the text and looking at the text now. Now, covenants, um, you've heard, as I mentioned, there is a um, mention of salt covenants, but there's also blood covenants, threshold covenants. If you've uh, listened to Rico in, his, in recent years, he's done a lot of uh, work and explanation on the various covenants and um, that were done in the ancient Near East and their significance as it relates to scripture and, and biblical covenants. Now, the idea of covenants, though, no matter which type we're talking about, center on one central idea. And that idea is the idea that two are becoming one in a shared life. And so this idea precedes words. In other words, um, we need to understand when we come to the interpretive table, if you will, that we often in modern times say that, well, words have meaning. What is the meaning of that word, we say. But really, uh, words don't have meaning. Meaning has words. Words give expression to ideas. So ideas or truth precedes words. Human language and words are just 
giving expression to pre-existing ideas, you might even say from the heart and mind of God. So ideas have life and spirit, and words give them form and expression. In the ancient Near East covening practice, in particular, the general practice was a blood sharing or a uh, a blood covenant. And so there was life sharing involved. Um, we know that the Bible says that, li- that life is in the blood. And so they would exchange blood, often consuming the blood of either human or animal blood um, in, in that exchange. Of course, wine and other things, which is the blood of grapes, would also be representative. But the idea of a blood covenant was central to um, the ancient Near Eastern practice of blood covenants. And we see uh, various blood covenants in the scripture. But what we also see is the idea of salt. And salt, interestingly enough, is a substitute for blood as well. And it is, again, a sharing of life, particularly in the ancient Near Eastern customs. So if you read Clay Trumbull's uh, book, The Salt Covenant, you can get extensive information on this particular point. Um, so if you want to get all the details, I would recommend that book. It's a it's a good read for getting a real overview of, of all of the ways and the significance of the Salt Covenant, particularly as it relates to the Blood Covenant. And of course, again, Clay Trumbull also has the Blood Covenant book, um, which is called but, um, The Blood Covenant, I believe um, is the name. Yes, The Blood Covenant. So uh, both of those books are very informative and will give you a lot of background. But just in the natural, to give you an example of how salt can be a substitute for blood, well, initially we look at just blood itself. Um, today you could get a blood transfusion, for example. So there's blood sharing. The sick person gets healthier, a healthier person's blood, and it actually restores more life to that person in a temporary sense. So we see that in the natural. But let's say you lose a lot of blood and you, they go, you go to the hospital. Well, they're going to often, instead of giving you blood, because there's a lot of other implications and issues of going along with taking someone's blood they, and expense in limited quantities available. So they will give you a saline injection. And saline is salt water. And so you're getting um, what is equivalent, and it it serves a similar life-giving purpose um, even when you lose a lot of blood, and it helps your body be restored. So even when you, um, if you've ever, for example, also um, lost a tooth or something, and maybe there was some blood that that came out um, into your mouth, um, and you tasted it, well, it was, it's you noticed that it was salty. So there's this salt-blood connection, not only in the natural, but we will see that it's going to come through in the spiritual as well, as we're going to see through the scriptures how the metaphors are going to be intertwined. And once you see that, you'll be able to um, unlock the metaphors and really see what God is saying in these metaphors. Now, the Jewish Encyclopedia also mentions that after the destruction of the temple, the table set for a meal was considered as an altar. The rabbis recommended that salt should be put on it, nor should the blessing be recited without salt. 
And that, of course, is significant as they understood the significance of salt from the ancient Near Eastern perspective. And the ancient Near Eastern way of dealing with salt um, really included um, the idea of covenanting and just like a blood covenant. So it, ha- it carried the same weight. So if you were going to share bread, for example, though, um, you might share, give your even your enemy water or bread. And just giving them water or bread alone was not enough to imply covenant. How It was general hospitality, or a, you might say it calling a temporary truce uh, for a time being. But it was not considered covenanting in itself. So you could have an enemy and you could sit down to the table to eat a, a basic meal or recover um, for maybe discussing um, terms that you might have to stop a war or whatnot, but it was not considered covenanting act by itself. However, if salt or the symbol of blood was added to the meal, now we have a covenant act and that changed everything. Um, and Clay Trumbull gives a lot of examples um, to really set it home, and I won't take time now, but I, I will put that premise to you, and then you can search it out more yourself. Now, um, when that blood covenant symbol was added, whether it was wine with bread or salt with bread, that elevated it to a special hospitality. So the covenant act then is where with two becoming one becomes this permanent, unchanging idea in the ancient Near East simply by adding either salt or wine to the meal. Now, the story of the man, uh, there's a story that's given in uh, Trumbull's book that I will tell you of a man named Yaakov, and he was the son of a coppersmith and became this robber chieftain. And he broke into Nasser Sayyir's Persian palace and was making off with his jewels. And he, he stepped on something hard and he reached down. He thought maybe it was a jewel that he dropped. And so he tested it by, by putting it to his mouth and, and, and he realized it was rock salt. Immediately he dropped everything and he was like, in, in his mind from the ancient Near Eastern perspective, he's, Oh my gosh, I cannot, I, I, I now have to defend this person. I cannot now um, steal from him. I have to defend him because now a covenant has been entered. So salt was that significant. Um, he goes on, uh, the governor the next day realizes someone had tried to rob him, but that uh, it became known that he had honored that salt covenant. And so he became his right-hand man and he goes on, to be a founder of the, um, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it correctly, the Safarid dynasty of the Persian Caliphate. So um, pretty interesting how seriously they took in the ancient Near East these, the salt being added and any salt in a meal being added when you're sharing it um, as uh, implying a permanent unchanging covenant. And now, so we understand this idea when it comes to Messiah and us. But sadly, a lot of times we're, we don't realize the implications of this covenant that we have with the Messiah and how it's going to also carry over into a covenant that we need to be keeping amongst each other and how that affects us um, as a community. So we, we often just think of it in terms of, well, it's between me and Messiah and this personal relationship, if you will, from our Christian backgrounds. However, you do not always 
consider that this is this whole idea is going this two becoming one is going to impact us as a community as well as individuals um, between Messiah and ourselves. Now Leviticus two thirteen was what set the precedent for this um, idea this that salt is to accompany every grain offering every korban. And so we're going to dive into this element and begin to see how this whole precedent gets set for the necessity of salt with our offerings and how ultimately what that's going to do as far as speaking when we get to Messiah saying that we are the salt of the earth and different uh, allusions to salt and how that's going to impact how we view um, our relationship to each other and the necessity of how we interact with one another um, and the offerings that we present to the Lord in our obedience and and what the significance of is of that will be. Um, and we probably won't get to that till next week. So I'm going to continue. We have about, let's see, um, three or four minutes left. So I'm going to see how far we can get. And then we will continue this again at um, our next teaching. Now, salt was used also in the preparation of the showbread and of the incense. So not only was it to be with every korban offering, um, whether that was animal or the grain, but it was also, they needed a lot of salt because they were using it with the showbread as well as the incense. So salt was something we don't often think about being added and being a part of the temple process, but yet was very significant in um, the necessity of needing it. And it was quite valuable, especially in ancient times. So they definitely um, needed quite a bit of that. Now, Leviticus 2, uh, 13 is uh, presented in a type of chiastic structure. So it says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season or salt with salt. And those words, uh, the sea, the word for season and salt, because it says season with salt in the English, is actually uh, both times they're using the word salt. So you should salt it with salt, essentially. But we get the, the um, command form of the word there, and it, so it, we get the idea in the English, you season it with salt. And salt was the primary means of seasoning. So if you can visualize, because you can't see the PowerPoint, um, that that is A, that is the first part of the chiastic structure. So now B will be the central part. So that's going to be the more important part telling us the meaning and the focus here. And it says, so that the salt covenant of your God shall not be lacking or ceasing from your grain offering. And then it closes again with the A prime, with all your offerings, you shall offer or draw near. That word offer is actually uh, more the idea of draw near with salt. And so the beginning is a command to you should season all your offerings with salt. The end is you shall add to all your offerings and draw near to God with salt. Just as we draw near with blood, we shall draw near with salt. And salt and blood are interchangeable. But the central part of that verse there in the chiastic structure that shows the, the point is so that the salt covenant of your God shall not be lacking. That word there is from the root for Shabbat should not cease from your grain offering. 
And so as we draw closer here to our last couple minutes, I will wrap up this for the time being, and then we will continue to dive more deeply into this whole line of thinking next time. But what I want you to just um, begin to think about is the importance. What is the importance of adding salt and the to every offering. If we think of it in the symbolic terms, we're going to think of our obedience as offerings to God, as how we treat others as offerings to God, as we're obeying the Torah as our offerings to God. And if we don't add the salt, and that's what we're going to find out in the next teaching, what that salt symbolizes to the Torah that we perform, then we are really not acting in the cut. We're not um, engaging in a covenant act. And that is what is really going to be the most central point. And I hope you'll join with me again. Go to foridiswritten.com. Again, that is foridiswritten.com for more information about the ministry.